Well, Steve Banzinger is the Eugene W. Price Professor of Agronomy and Horticulture and is a specialist in small grains breeding and genetics. Educated at Harvard and Purdue, Dr. Banzinger teaches graduate level plant breeding courses and his research concentrates on improvement of winter wheat, barley, and triticale through the use of better germplasm identification, statistical design, biotechnology, and crop modeling. The title of his presentation this afternoon, as you can see on the screen, is Global Treasures, the Origins of Plants that Sustain Life. So Steve? First of all, thank you very much, Jim, for inviting me. I uh, truly appreciate being here, and it's a great honor. I don't think I've ever spoken at this forum before, and rarely do I speak to so many people. So this is very kind. And as Jim mentioned, the title is Global Treasures, The Origins of Plants That Sustain Life. And what you'll understand is I'm a pretty easygoing fellow, so if you have questions, you can ask them at any time. You can save them till the end. There's no problem. I'm going to try to make this a little bit amusing because there are some good stories about plants. Most people don't know them, but that's, they can be enlightened. Now let's see if I can do this properly. Oh, going the other way, good. Well, the topics I wanted to talk about today would be what the plant kingdom is, because I recognize that not everybody is intimately aware of plants, what the centers of origin are, and how they're different from the centers of diversity, and which of the two is most important for people like myself when it comes to germplasm. I want to give you an idea of what crops looked like in the wild, so what the progenitor species are. I am a small grains breeder, so the examples I use will be wheat. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about domestication and plant uses. We'll talk a little bit about plant exchanges and how people learn from one culture when they've never been exposed to a plant previously. Then we're going to learn about everything we sort of learned about how we exchange plants and bring plants in. And then I'll end up with a little bit about modern plant breeding just because it happens to be domestication that's currently being done. So to put it in perspective, okay, I am an agricultural scientist and I always like to start this which is a quote by uh, Jean and André Mayer, which is, few scientists think of agriculture as the chief or model science. Many indeed do not consider it a science at all. Yet it was the first science that makes all human life possible, and it may well be that before the end of the century is over, the success or failure of science as a whole will be judged by the success or failure of agriculture. So just so you know where I'm coming from, that's my vantage point. Now, if you think about plants, and I know a lot of people don't, but, but if you do, the oxygen you breathe comes from plants. That's the natural recycling form. The food you eat is either directly or indirectly derived from plants, because animals eat plants to sustain themselves. And so the question that the U.S. Botanical Garden asks is, could you live without plants? And the answer is clearly no. Now, when you get into the plant kingdom, I always like this because you know, this is sort of the true tree of life, okay? And I like the way the botanical garden positioned it. You have your ancestral algaes, you have your seedless non-vascular, your seedless vascular, your gymnosperms, which are your pines and conifers, you have your monocots, and you have your dicots. And if you go into the monocots, you'll see grasses, which gets the same billing as blueberries and sunflowers in the dicots. The only difference is that the grasses include maize or corn, wheat, rice, sorghum, 
barley, which are the main crops that sustain for calories human life. The other main crop, of course, is potatoes. So, now, one of the things we have to differentiate in this talk is what's a weed, what's a crop, okay? Now, a weed is a generally unwanted organism that thrives in the habitats disturbed by humans. You can have many other definitions, but that's what we're going to use. And I think what's interesting is that a weed is defined in its relationship to humanity. So that if you have a wildflower out in a, in a, a pristine area up on a mountain that's not disturbed by humanity, we think it's a beautiful wildflower, right? If it happens to be growing in something that you didn't want it to grow in, it's probably a weed, even though it's the same plant. Domestication is literally brought into the home, the domicile, to serve all who live there. And it spans everything from serving humankind to being unable to survive without human intervention. And there are crops or plants which can no longer survive in the wild. Probably the common maize or, or corn is one of the ones that's most like that. And crops are plants that are harvested. And this definition comes from a, a fellow by the name of Jack Harlan. Now, the first major point we want to talk about are the centers of origin and the centers of diversity. Now, the centers of origin are where the crop originated, and it's also where it was domesticated. Okay? The centers of diversity is where the crop diversified and where the greatest amount of genetic variation exists. Now, at one time, they were thought to be the same. They thought wherever the crop originated, that's where the greatest diversity would be because you would have the longest time span for mutations to occur. In fact, what they found is that the center of diversity is often related to the ecology and the climatology and the geography of the area where the crops move to. So that it tends to be the centers of diversity tend to be where there's elevation changes because with each 50 meters you have a degree in temperature change. Anything where you have moisture changes, things like that, helps the crop diversify. So the center of origin may or may not actually be the center of diversity. Now, what I want to show you here are the great treasure troughs, okay? And this is for uh, basically all of the important crops. And what you see in the New World, and we're just going to kind of go one by one to give you some idea because most people don't have an idea where their plants have actually come from, okay? So if we start out in region one, which would be the Mexico or, or Central America, a couple of crops that are interesting you might think are would be cotton, tobacco, tomato, and corn came from this area. Okay, if you go then to the Peruvian region, they also list corn there, but most people believe that corn really originated in this area. But you then have things such as cotton. Again, you don't have to have a crop have only one center of origin. It can, you, know, you can have related species that have all evolved. And you'll see that there's actually the Egyptian cotton, which is from the old world, okay? And probably the most famous one in this area is the potato. Southern Chile has just a few little species, not much. Brazilian, cassava. Those of you that eat tapioca pudding, that would be one. The pineapple comes from that area. Now, if we come to the vast agricultural region of the United States, the crops that originated here are those that we sustain life with. The blueberries, 
the cranberries, the Jerusalem artichokes, the pecans, the sunflowers, the wild rice, and the wild grape. So if you want a truly an American meal, that's what you'd have to eat. Okay? Now, if you go to the old world centers where Ethiopia is, you'll see things like sorghum originated there. If you go to Central Asia, which is here, that's where the apple, the carrot originated from, as well as a number of other species. If you go to the Mediterranean region, that's where you'll see cabbage and lettuce. If you go to the Indo-Burmese region, that's where the chickpea, again cotton, and the orange tree originated. If you go to Asia Minor, which would be this area here, wheat, barley, oats, plus a number of other ones such as the pomegranate, the fig. If you go to this area, which would be Siam, Malaya, uh, Java, you'll see breadfruit and sugarcane. And if you go to China, probably the one that's most important for us would be soybean, but also your millets and your cowpea. So if you look at the world's great crops, a couple of things come out. Do you notice that they're all pretty much in the same sort of latitudes, whether it's you know, around the equator? And what you discover is plants tend to go east-west better than north-south. So we'll come back to that point in a bit. But the first question is, is why do I care about these things? Well, and I, I guess what I should also show you is, how many of you eat eggplant? Okay. If I showed you all of these, that's probably the only eggplant I've seen, the big purple one. Eggplant's indigenous to the Indian subcontinent. Every one of these, and it actually goes around the corner, are different forms of eggplant. There's over 300 different cultivated forms in the center of origin. So when you go to the center of diversity or origin, you'll see types that you never see anywhere else. And they'll be used by people in ways that we have no understanding of how to use them. These are their tomatoes, and then they have other vegetables, which I have no clue what they are. Okay. Okay, so why are they important, these centers of diversities? Well, first of all, virtually every food comes from plants in the U.S. are not native to here, okay? And perhaps no country has benefited from crop exchange more than the U.S., with the possible exception of Australia, which is also a, basically a desert when it comes to, to agricultural plants. And it also says that agriculture is totally dependent upon foreign germplasm, which explains why in the early 1800s, every embassy of the United States had someone who was instructed to collect plant materials. So if you look at the origins of plants and the history of America, our State Department, or its progenitor, was constantly searching for plants. Okay? And that was part of their duties. Now, let's take a look at our all-American foods. So we'll have a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich with chips. Well, you get your chips from South America, you get your wheat from the Middle East, you get your tomatoes from Central America, and you get your lettuce from the Mediterranean. Now that's an all-American meal, right? And when someone tells you there's nothing more American than apple pie, well, you get your apples from Central Asia, probably Kazakhstan. You get your sugar, if it comes from sugar beets, it's Europe, or if it's from sugar cane, it's Asia. You get your shortening from soybeans from China. You get your flour again from the Middle East. And you get your cinnamon from India and Sri Lanka. But there's nothing 
you know, more American or as American as apple pie, right? Just so you, just so you understand that. Now, the next part would be domestication. And it occurred at the centers of origin because that's where people were most familiar with the plants. I mean, they'd grown up with it. Uh, agriculture began with hunter-gatherers. And one of the mysteries is who created agriculture and why. And, and the reason why it's a mystery is that if you go to places like Australia, when they had new colonies and the Europeans came there, when their crops failed, what did they do? They went on walkabouts the same way as the aboriginal populations did. So there clearly was an abundance of food without agriculture. And so it's a mystery in a way, to those of us who work in agriculture, why did people change from basically maybe in, in a few hours doing all the hunting and gathering you needed, and then the rest of the week you told stories and played games and had fun? And why would you change that to an agricultural existence where you work pretty hard? But it's a question that we'll leave for another time and people far more skilled than I. Crops spread east to west rather than north to south. The reason for that is most likely the day length. Photoperiods very critical in plants, and so when you go east and west, it's quite easy to have the same photoperiods. If you go north to south, you tend to have great temperature changes as well as photoperiods. And all you have to think is the climate, with the exception of the moisture gradient in Wyoming, more similar to Nebraska than North Dakota's climate or, say, Oklahoma's climate. And the answer is east to west tends to be more similar. And then the other thing you have to understand is that explorers and pioneers took their crops with them, and many of the trips of exploration were to find those crops and find new ways of getting those plants. So I just want to show you this is a papyrus scroll. Uh, this was in a museum in Alexandria. You maybe not can't see it, but this is wheat. That's the wheat heads on the top there. This is actually wheat here with the wheat heads on the top and being cut. If you're in the Middle East, there's a, a food called frika where they harvest the durum wheat green and then they throw it on a fire to burn the husk off. And then they take the green seed and rehydrate it and mix it with rice or they mix it or cook it directly. And it's called frika, so it's an immature harvest. And it would appear that that's what they're doing here. And, of course, you see the other agricultural plants that were important, the figs and the dates and things like that. Now, one of the things that caught me is that usually when you look at statues and sculptures, rarely do you see those on domestic chores. Almost all the time, unless, you know, in the previous case, it may have been sort of a, like a lesson on how to do things, and there's lots of laws and codes when it comes to how to handle food. But almost all of the statues you'll see in museums are, in fact, the king hunting lions, or winning some great battle, things like that. Rarely do you see people actually doing something. This happens to be an Egyptian sculpture milling wheat. Now, the domestication of wheat. And I like this quote. History celebrates the battlefields whereupon we meet our death, but scorns to speak of the plowed fields whereby we thrive. It knows the names of the king's bastard, but cannot tell us the origin of wheat. That is the way of human folly. That's actually still true. We don't know the origin of wheat. We have some pretty good ideas, and we're going to show you how they are. But when you come from a center of diversity, you now have to think about, with all that variation, what took it from a weed to a crop? This is sort of the origin of wheat. What we know is about 60 million years ago, the Poitiae evolved from their progenitor species. 35 million years ago, 
the unknown progenitor of wheat evolved and has been lost. It's probably been extinct. And if it wasn't extinct, it probably intermingled with other forms so that we've lost the original form. Okay? Now, after the progenitor, which is 35 million years ago, there were a number of species that evolved from it. I've only given you a few. There's actually a, a whole series of them. Alamus, Hainaldi, or other ones that evolved. This one had seven chromosome pairs, 14 chromosomes. One evolved into the bee genome, and this is the parent that's lost. We have no idea what it is. We've speculated it's Triticum searzii, Triticum speltoides, a number of things, but there's no proof of that. We have a very good idea that the A genome, which evolved about a million years ago, this is all done by enzymatic mutation, so you can see how the DNA evolved over time, and you can use that as a molecular clock, so that's how they did the timing. That's most likely Triticum boeticum or monococcum. There's a lot of names for it. The C genome evolved. The D genome evolved about 2.5 to 4.5 million years ago. That's Triticum tauchii or Agelof squirrel, so they're cinnamons. Barley is another one of the ones that evolved from the original progenitor about 11 million years ago. Rye evolved about 7 million years ago. Now, after the divergent evolution, then we started having convergent evolution which means that the lines that it separated came back together. So about a half a million years ago, the A and the B genomes crossed, spontaneously doubled to give us a tetraploid. This happens to be Triticum dictacoides, which when domesticated became Triticum durum, and that's where you get all your pastas from. So if you eat spaghetti, noodles, the best stuff comes from durum wheat. Okay. You can have it for cultivated species. You can have it for weed species. The C and the D genome also cross spontaneously doubled. You got jointed goat grass, one of the most pernicious weeds that cohabits fields with wheat. Okay. Now, about only eight to ten thousand years ago, the Durham wheats progenitors crossed with the D genome to form common or bread wheat. So, if you think about it, human history is about ten thousand years old. It coincides with the origin of bread wheat. Now, I'm not saying that history started because we had bread wheat. Don't get me wrong. But just to put it as a time marker, that it's only about 10,000 years old. Now, at the same time, the Durham wheats spontaneously crossed, at a different time, I should say, with rye, about 100 years ago, and that gave us triticale. So now you have plants to show you that domestication and changes occur relatively recently. Not everything is 10,000 or a half a million years ago. Some are very, very recent. Okay. Yes? Was that uh, 100 years ago we had this tricking? Was that a plan? It was uh, a. It, it happened by chance. That actually happened by chance, but then someone with a good observation kept it. Okay? They saw something which was unusual. And if I'll show you a picture of Triticale, which I'll show you in a minute, you'll understand why it stood out to them. Okay? Excellent question. Now, if you look at the domestication, and I point this out because this is West Turkey, this is Syria, this is Iraq, this is Iran, and this area is very near the Tigris and Euphrates, which would be the Fertile Crescent, and that's actually where wheat domesticated. So this is, happens to be the A genome domestication. It must have come into contact with the B genome in this area, and then the Durham progenitors by, you know, had to be physically close to have that outcross occur, 
must have also occurred somewhere where the two species overlapped. In that case, the Dictacoides and the Tauchii. Okay? So physically, you can find where these are. Now, the other thing that's quite interesting as a wheat breeder is that it's a very interesting place to go to Turkey, Syria, Iraq, and Iran if you're trying to get germplasm, isn't it? Sometimes it's more easy now than it is others. Okay? Israel has a tremendous amount of germplasm. And just as a side story, one of my best friends is a germplasm explorer. And his son, as all young men in Israel do, serve in the army. And he came back, and my friend polished his boots so his son could sleep. And he found in the shoelace a species of wheat which is not indigenous to Israel. So he asked his son the next day, he said, Do you know, son, where were you last uh, yesterday? And he says, oh, I was just out on a mission. He says, yeah, I know you're on a mission. Where were you? And he says, oh, I was up in the northern part of Israel. And Moshe said, I don't think so. And he says, well, Dad, why? He says, because this, this seed here doesn't come from northern Israel. Well, maybe it was middle Israel. He said, no, no, that's not the case. It doesn't come from there either. He says, okay, Dad, you got me. I was in Syria. And he could find it on the seed. Okay? Now, if you've never seen how plants look in the wild, this is what's called an oak, O-A-K, savanna. And this happens to be actually in the occupied territories of, of Syria. It would be the Golan Heights. Okay? And you can see there's a lot of boulders. You'll see a few trees, okay, which the goats like to climb up and eat. Okay? All of this is Triticum dictacoides. At the same time, this are your wild oats. Okay? So in this weedy field is Triticum dictacoides, wild wheat, wild oats. And if we were earlier, we would see the wild barleys. But the wild barley shatter because they mature more quickly. And so all you would see for the wild barleys might be a stem. Nothing else. The seed's already gone. But what I want to th show you, when we think of a prairie, this is actually a prairie of wild wheat. Now, just to give you an idea, this is just a, a picture of all the heads of wild wheat in that field. Okay? And when they do the plant counts, they actually have higher plant populations in the weed fields than we would plant commercially in our cultivated fields. So if we were planting, say, 300 plants per square meter, there may be 500 plants per square meter in a stand of wild wheat. Okay. Now, how do we know the origin of wheat? Well, we know it because we can trace it. We don't know what the bee genome species is. By the way, by convention, the female species is always written on the left. But they thought it was Triticum speltoides. If you cross that with Triticum monococcum, they thought you would end up with Triticum dictacoides. The monococcum is very clear. That's a very easy species to know. The, if you take Triticum dictacoides and you cross it with uh, Triticum uh, tauchii or Agelof sclerosa, the synonym, you will get common wheat. And you can literally remake the crosses. And you can come back, and then the cross of these two species will readily cross with common wheat. And so that's how you draw genes out of these two species and bring them into common wheat. Now, the only other part that's interesting for those of you that are a little bit younger is I think this is where the original expression, bad to the bone, came from. The B genome crossed to the A, A crossed to the D. Okay? 
It's a little breeder humor. You can laugh. It's okay. Now, I showed you a wild field, but one of the things people are doing is they're trying to make sure that we don't lose the natural habitats for crops. This happens to be in Syria. This is a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Rajaram, one of the world's great wheat breeders. And we're in a field of wild barley. And so they're doing in situ collections. So in case the Golan Heights get burned or get destroyed by wars or other types of things, they have spots where the crop is allowed to evolve in preserves. So if you think of like the Kruger National Park in South Africa that has all the wild animals, there are also parks where they have all the wild plants. Now, if you've never seen barley, that's what cultivated barley looks like. Now, I want to show you this because, again, I want to have you understand the importance of how weeds work. This happens to be on a highland in Syria. It's in their more, much of Syria is a desert, but the highlands tend to be relatively wet. It's the Croc de Chevalier, which is a crusader fort. Okay? Now, what's interesting about the crusader fort is if you see these two, those are lions, which meant that gate was built by Richard the Lionhearted. Okay? And this would be the original castle. Now, this is the original castle. This is the moat around the castle. It was conquered by the Syrians, and therefore they built a larger castle around it. This is the view from that. And if you go into where the Crusaders had their baths, you'll find wild barley growing. It's truly a weed that goes everywhere. And if you're ever in the Middle East, at the time when wild barley's flowering, it'll be everywhere. If you're in Turkey, it'll be all in the grass medians. Anything that's unkept will have wild barley, wild wheat, wild oats. Now, this is rye. That's what the rye seed looks like. I wanted to show you triticale. We grow very little rye in Nebraska. We do grow a fair amount of triticale, and that's what it looks like. Now, the question was, was the triticale a human-made cross or spontaneous? This is the head of triticale. If you've ever seen its head, it looks like it would yield about 200 bushels per acre. It's just that it's semi-sterile, and we never get that kind of yield. Okay? But physically, it is much showier than would wheat be. And it looks like it has far greater yield potential than wheat does. And in fact, actually, in our studies, it has a higher grain yield. It just doesn't have the uses of wheat and it has a higher forage yield, so it would be much better for cellulosic ethanol and things like that or feeding animals than wheat does. But it's, it's, uh, it's an absolutely beautiful crop. Now, why are we interested in domesticated plants? Well, we're interested because we use them, right? These are some of the products of wheat. Most of them are leaven, and the two main uses would either be noodles or bread products of some kind. That's wheat. Now, barley used as a pasture can be used in soups and things, and of course, it's also used as beer. Now, I want to bring back to you the concept of how important beer is. I know there's some undergraduates here that are probably too young to understand the importance of beer, uh, but we can help enlighten you. Columbus's voyage to the New World. Now, remember, Columbus was sent out to find a new spice route, right? Portuguese had gone through Africa. He was going to go west to get to the eastern lands, looking for plants. That's his mission. So what did the good plant explorer take with him? Well, he took about 10,000 gallons of water. He took about 10,000 gallons of wine. And he took 50,000 gallons of beer. Now, a couple things you need to know. 
On ships, you get your water from the sails whenever there's a rainstorm. So you collect water as it goes. Number two, water spoils. So you always want fresh water. You can't carry it in a cask very well. Wine is too expensive and it has too much alcohol in it, so you can't give it to the crew consistently because they'll get drunk. The beer we're talking about isn't the beer that we're used to. It's a very mild alcoholic beer, and it's also boiled, so it would keep. And that's why you always had beer on the ship, and that's why it was the main liquid that you would normally have. Okay? So as Columbus took his beer, his wine, and his water, he opened up the new world to agriculture. Okay. Now, just a little bit more on ship's beer. This is from the log of the Mayflower, okay? We could not now take time for further search or consideration. Our victuals, which means their food, being much spent, especially our beer, and it now being the 19th of December. If you've ever wondered why they landed at Plymouth when their charter said they were supposed to land in Virginia, they ran out of food and drink. And that's why they got to Plymouth. That's literally the case. They ran out of what they needed, so they had to get someplace quickly so they could get fresh water, fresh food, things like that. Now, again, the importance of finding plants. This is Christopher Columbus's diaries. The island is beautiful. I believe that there are many herbs and many trees that are worth much in Europe for dyes and medicines, but I do not know them, and this causes me great sorrow. There are trees of a thousand sorts, and all have their several fruits, and I feel most, the most unhappy man in the world not to know them, but I am well assured they are valuable. Now, this, is, of course, is a bit of an advertisement. Columbus wanted to make sure that the king and queen knew that he was bringing back cool stuff, right? Some of it was gold, some of it was other things. But quite often, they also were interested in plants. And even if he didn't make it to the Spice Islands, he could at least say he found some new plants. Now again, think of all the plants that he found in the New World. Everything from, say, beans that you eat, you know, cashews, papaya, peppers, tobacco, tomatoes, corn, guava, onion, uh, quinoa, you don't know quinoa, I do, but squash, things like that, strawberries in some cases, pineapples. A lot of things were found here. Now, and if you look at it, how important was that view? Thomas Jefferson made a comment that the greatest service which can be rendered to any country is to add a useful plant to its culture, especially a bread grain. Why do you think every ambassador had someone on his staff, almost from the beginning of this country, looking for plants? They knew the value of what plants could do. So now the question is, is, is you got all these guys looking for plants. How do you know how to use them? Okay, Because you've never run into them. You never, you know, if you were an Italian, you never knew what a tomato looked like. You never knew what a bean looked like, because they're all New World plants. So how did you learn how to eat them? Okay? And if you had those plants, why would you get rid of the plant that was meeting your need already? You know, you have a sort of a displacement cost, you know. Yeah, I'm eating wheat. Why would I go eat rice? Or rice got to Europe fairly early. Why would I eat corn or potatoes? Okay? Well... So we look at potatoes. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen potato germplasm, but that's what it looks like. And by the way, every part of the potato but the potato is toxic to humans, and even some of the potatoes are toxic to humans. 
Okay? So the native people had a lot of tricks to make them edible. Lake Titicaca, they would put the potatoes in the lake and let them sit there so they could leach the alkaloids out, which were the toxins. They'd put them up on the roof so they could freeze and thaw, and that would allow the enzymes to break the cells and break the toxins down. Now, you're a European. You're eating bread, maybe rice if you have it from trade. Someone gives you a potato. Why would you want to eat a potato? I mean, you don't know. I mean, it could be poisonous, right? Every part of the plant's poisonous. So the history of how crops got popularized is really very interesting. Sir Walter Raleigh, I don't know if you remember, but he sacked Lima, Peru. You know, he circumnavigated the globe as a privateer, a legal pirate. He got to Lima, sacked the city, took their gold, brought back potatoes. Now he comes home, Queen Elizabeth is waiting for him. Lots of treasure, Queen gets her cut. Throws a huge feast in honor of Queen Elizabeth. What does he serve? Exotic foods. What's more exotic than a New World potato? Virtually nothing. The queen eats potatoes, thinks, hey, this is pretty cool. What then happens? The feast was more than just the queen, right? The whole court said, I would like to eat the same food as the Queen of England. So potatoes became very popular. By the way, have you ever heard of Kew Garden? Kew Garden is the royal garden, the royal botanical garden. Every king or queen had a royal botanical garden to bring new plants to their country. So, of course, the potatoes ended up in Kew Garden and then were spread elsewhere, eventually to Ireland. Now, the king of France was slightly different. He wanted to popularize potatoes too, but he had a different strategy. He planted his potatoes in the royal garden, and he put troops around it all day and all night, 24 hours constant. They were guarding those potato plants. When the potatoes got ripe, he kept the troops on in the day and took them away at night. So what do you think the curious Parisians might do, thinking that the French garden was not guarded at night, but there was something extremely valuable because the king guarded it 24 hours a day? They discovered potatoes. And that's how potatoes got popularized in France. Now, the tomato is a great one, okay? The tomato looks like a heart, okay? And so, and again, the tomato, just like the potato, every part of the plant is poisonous but the tomato. So the Italians called them love apples. And the reason was they looked like a heart. And in their culture, because the plant was poisonous, when you broke up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you had unrequited love, you would eat a tomato because it showed that your heart was breaking and that, in fact, you were going to perhaps commit suicide because of this broken heart. Now, nobody died of eating a tomato, but it was a pretty nice, you know, sort of symbol about how badly you felt when you broke up with your friend, okay? So that's why they were called love apples, and that's why they became so popular in Italy. It's one of the ways they permeated that culture. Again, of course, the corn coming from the New World, and you can see the diversity that corn has. Right? Now, tobacco is a most interesting plant. Again, the old world didn't have tobacco. Okay? But when you think of the old world, you think of the Europeans smoking pipes, right? Sherlock Holmes wasn't a suave, debonair detective smoking a cigarette, right? 
when you think of the Spaniards and you think of the Italians, they're smoking cigarettes and cigars. Now, neither one of those cultures had any knowledge of how tobacco was to be used. So why did they separate? Well, in North America, the culture was you smoked a pipe, the peace pipe, right? Came in friendship, take a puff off the pipe, pass it to the next fellow. He or she takes a puff out of the pipe, passes it to the next person. And so if you were the English and you landed in North America, this is what a native pipe looks like. This is actually an early European pipe, showing that it was very much modeled after the native pipes. And of course, this is what modern pipes look like. Now, if you were a Spaniard and you colonized the Caribbean, the tobacco, they just rolled up like a cigar, smoked it right on, on the leaf. So the Italians and the Spanish explorers all thought you had to smoke tobacco rolled up like a leaf. Now, that only explains part of it because of the culture. The other part is that if you look at the tobacco in North America, it has a much higher nicotine level, much higher level of tars. So if you took three or four puffs on that peace pipe, you'd be flat on your back. Whereas if you were smoking the tobacco rolled as a leaf from the Caribbean, which is much milder, you could smoke that, enjoy it, and keep that leaf to yourself. So it's the difference in the plant species that led to that speciation, or to those different uses. Now, other things you can look at, alfalfa. Now, I don't know how many of you know the other name for alfalfa, but in England it's called lucerne. And some of you may see lucerne dairies, and it's traditionally a New England term. Okay? So why is it that in America we call alfalfa alfalfa when the English would call it lucerne, and they brought lucerne to the U.S.? Alfalfa, by the way, is a Moorish term, meaning feed for horses. And so when the Muslim population migrated out of uh, the Middle East and conquered Spain, they brought their plants with them, which included alfalfa. And then when the Spaniards went to the New World, they brought alfalfa with them, and it spread through then Mexico, which included Mexico and California, our southwestern United States. And the English brought in their lucerne to New England. So now you have alfalfa in the West Coast, you have lucerne in the East Coast. Which of the two forms do you think became the predominant form of alfalfa in the country? the one from California, right? And that's why the name came with it. By the way, alfalfa is a relatively new plant, all things considered. Now, so this shows you how plants get transferred and, and domesticated and migrated. And we've learned some things. They tend to move better east to west. That's the key thing. The other thing which you need to understand is America is the breadbasket for the world for a reason. And that's because crops often thrive outside of their area of domestication because, or their centers of diversity, because when you bring the crop, you can leave the pests and the diseases behind. If you think of the great coffee plantations of South America, coffee actually comes from Africa. Now, if they ever get coffee rust, they'll burn the plantation to the ground. It's a complete eradication. No ifs, ands, or buts, the whole population goes, okay? That's why coffee is so easily grown in South America, and you don't get the yields in Africa that you, used to, that you can get in South America. The Irish potato famine. When the, Irish, when the potato got to Ireland, there were no diseases and no insects. It flourished. It was like it was in paradise. The famine was caused because a disease came from the old world that could attack it, from the new world that could attack it. And once the disease got there, it had no predator or pest to hold back the disease, 
So it devastated the crop completely. So generally you'll find the area where the crop originated is not the area where it grows the best because you can get rid of the pests. Plant introductions succeed if they're variable and if you bring them into the same ecological climate. The wheat of the Great Plains, for example, is from Turkey and Crimea. It's not the English wheats that the English uh, colonists brought over. The steppes of Turkey and Crimea are much more similar to the prairies of the Midwest than they are to the English wheats. Okay, now, domestication continues today. That's what plant breeding really is. Okay? So, we talked about Thomas Jefferson saying how important it was to bring new plants in. Once you get the plants there, it was pretty clear that you wanted to do something with them. Jonathan Swift said, and he gave it for his opinion that whoever could make two ears of corn or two blades of grass to grow upon a spot of ground where only one grew before would deserve better of mankind and do more essential service to his country than the whole race of politicians put together. Okay? Not a bad group to be associated with, I suppose. But Frederick II, also known as Frederick the Great of Prussia, made a comment. Who would bring it into being that there are henceforth three or four spikes where previously only one spike stood, he proved its homeland a service, which is to be valued more highly than the deeds of many kings, commanders, and poets. Not sure why he put kings, commanders, and poets together, but seeing as he was a king, that's probably pretty high praise. Okay? And by the way, if you look at it, spikes, he's talking about grasses. And again, corn, he's talking about not corn that we think of ZMAs, but the coarse grains, which would be the wheats, the barleys, and the, uh, and the oats. Now, if you look at germplasm then, a couple of things. There are the wild relatives, which we've shown you on the Golan Heights. There are weedy relatives. These are the plants which are almost semi-domesticated. They grow in concert with your domesticated species, but they're still weeds. Joining goat grass could be an example. In barley, Hordium spontaneum, which is a very similar, totally crossable type, very good uh, wild species, is the weedy relative. From then you go into land races. The, these would be sort of semi-improved, and I, I always hate to call them, they, they, they call them primitive cultivars. I don't like that because it sort of derogates the uh, indigenous people's skill as plant breeders, and quite frankly, some of them are really superb, okay? Uh, when I was a graduate student, there was a land race from Ethiopia that was put head-to-head -head and replicated trials with the three best worldwide sorghums, and it was the match, okay? So indigenous selection can be extremely successful. And then you have the advanced or modern cultivars, what's currently grown, and then you have the advanced breeding lines, the cultivars yet to come. And so if you look at the gradient, when we talk about the centers of diversity, this is where we're probably looking at the wild relatives. As they become domesticated, you go through weedy relatives, then to your domesticates, which are your land races, and then as you add modern technology, you go into more cultivars, and then the future would be what's yet to come. Now, how important is that germplasm? This happens to be the tomato. And I just want to show you what happens here. The modern tomato gets its genes for Gemini viruses from one wild species. This is what the wild species looks like. Nematodes from another wild species. 
If you like a nice plump tomato, something you can make tomato paste out of, the stem-soluble solids come from this species. More soluble solids come from this one as well as fusarium. Genes for fruit color and soluble solids come from this. And bacterial spect and higher lycopene and fruit sites come not from this. That's the cultivated tomato, but it's relative, which is that little tiny tomato by its side. So that's the pimenopholum tomato. All of those genes coming from the centers of diversity go into what's a modern tomato. And just to give you some idea, you get your bacterial resistance, your fungal resistance, your nematode resistance, and your virus resistance. All of these have come from different wild relatives of tomato. And that shows you why those are truly global treasures. If you like tomatoes, if you like crops, they come from those centers of diversity. Now, I'm going to end basically on this slide with one more after it. Uh, we talk about plant breeding, and many of you don't, don't get to work in plant breeding. It's something I really like. But just to give you an idea, in 1998, and I could update this slide, I suppose, the Nebraska production was about 5 billion pounds of wheat, okay, which is a little over 2.3 billion kilograms. Now, that's how much wheat we produced in the state. But a plant breeder can't take credit for that because some of that's due to fertilizer and herbicides and fungicides and insecticides and all the other things. But if you look at a wheat that was released in 1966 and you compare it to the wheats released in 1998, there was a 19% improvement when you had the same fertilizer, fungicide, herbicide, insecticide on it. So of that 5 billion pounds of wheat, Genetics had improved by 19%. Now, if you look at that, that's about 32 years, which means you get about a half a percent per year in genetic improvement, which means if you updated this slide to 2007, we'd be looking at probably a 25% improvement. Now, as the breeder for Nebraska, I can't take credit for that because there's varieties that have been produced by other programs that are grown in the state. So, in 1998, 70 cent 77% of all the wheat that was grown in the area was due to the varieties released by the University of Nebraska. So I could take credit for 77% of that 19%. Now, economic terms, at a $3 a bushel wheat, this crop was worth about a quarter of a billion dollars. For those of you who haven't been watching prices, wheat's now at $9 a bushel. So you can triple that. And so I will update that part of the slide whenever we have the Better Business Bureau come out. The increase due to genetics would be 19% of that, which was about $50 million. And due to the program at Nebraska, my predecessor and myself and my colleagues was about $37 million. So you get the idea, and that's annual, and that's just paid to the farm every year because that's the increase in yield they get every year. That doesn't include the millers, the bakers, the value-added, you know, or the value chain. Okay? So we hope people think there's been a pretty good return on investment. Frankly, I like making lots of money for Nebraska growers, but that's not why I got in this business. I got in this business to breed, to, to breed wheat so I could feed people. So if you took that same amount of wheat and you figured the average American eats 150 pounds of wheat per year, the Nebraska wheat crop feeds about 34 million people. We have roughly 300 million people in the country, so 10% of America gets fed from Nebraska. I can't take credit for feeding all those people, right? Because the genetics only are 19% of that, which is about 6.5 million people. 
That's how many people get fed because of plant breeders that wouldn't get fed otherwise. But I can't take credit for all of that because I don't, didn't make all those improvements. I only made about three-fourths of them. So the program at the University of Nebraska feeds about 5 million people every year. So for those of you familiar with the, the common phrase, give us this day our daily bread, as the wheat breeder for Nebraska, we're extremely honored that the state and the people of the state have chosen to invest in that goal. And while we may never be able to make it fully available for every human being, we can still work awfully hard at it. And that's why we go back to the centers of diversity to get the variation that as a plant breeder I use to improve varieties. With that, I'll end and thank you. If there's any questions, please feel free.